My guest today went from backstage on Broadway to center stage in the urban farming revolution with one of the world's most innovative companies. From Blue Tribe Media, this is the Good Business Podcast, the show where we talk to business leaders, social entrepreneurs and innovators about aligning profit with purpose and how you can make doing good, good for business. Now here's your host, James McGregor. Today's episode of the Good Business Podcast, I'm talking with Sam Schatz, who's the Managing Director and Global Head of Farm Development for Aerofarms. Aerofarms is a leading clean technology company that builds and operates responsible state-of-the-art indoor vertical farms all over the world, enabling local production and transforming agriculture. They're a certified B Corp and Aerofarms has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the world's most innovative companies for food two years in a row, and by Inc. as one of the top 25 disruptive companies in the world. In this episode, I talk with Sam about his background in venture capital and how he came to take the leading role in one of the most innovative urban farming businesses in the world, the challenges of building a disruptive company, and we get a glimpse at the future of farming. So let's kick off with, for people who don't know who you are, why don't you start with introducing yourself and tell us who you are. Yeah, sure. So my name is Sam Schatz. I am the Managing Director of Corporate Development here at Aero Farms. Practically, what that means is I lead uh, new farm development for the company, both here in the United States and internationally. I joined the company as the first employee after the founders. This was back in 2012 and have since uh, been with the organization and have helped it grow to over 150 people. And we're rapidly expanding our organization. So it's very exciting. Right. And tell us something that most people may not know about you. Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm actually born and raised in New York City, but I'm actually a fifth generation New Yorker. And my, my grandfather was actually the head of the Schubert organization in New York. And they were involved in a lot of the revitalization of New York City, and they produced a lot of Broadway shows. And so I kind of grew up with within the theater industry and had this amazing exposure at a very young age to all these incredible Broadway productions and was like climbing around the cat stage when I was a kid. And so uh, that's not a lot of people know that about me, but it's, it's a big inspiration. My grandfather was a big inspiration for me and, and also just seeing all those shows growing up and seeing the amazing potential, you know, human potential of those productions, I think was a big driver for me uh, in my career. So uh, that must've been so cool as a kid, like being backstage and seeing what was going on. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, they definitely had some couple run-ins at, at a young age with celebrities, and it was uh, quite quite an odd upbringing. Any names you want to drop? <laughs> well, there was once I, I once there was a, a show called the I think the Blue Room with Nicole Kidman, and there was this whole. We went to the opening, and I was maybe like a like a teenager, and there was all of this news about how. You know, Nicole Kidman was going to be in the nude, and this was like a big deal, and all the papers were writing about it. And I was just this clueless teenager, and all of these newspapers were trying to get a, like a you know a stupid quote from a teenager about how excited they were to see Nicole Kidman, and I had no idea what was happening or you know even what the show was about. And I ended up like seeing it, and then I got to meet her afterwards. And it was pretty hilarious. I didn't get any of those papers what they wanted, but yeah, those types of experiences. So. All right, so tell us, tell us a little bit about Aerofarms. Yeah, so Aerofarms is employing the latest in uh, technology called aeroponics, which is a, a form of hydroponics where we mist uh, the roots with macro and micronutrients. And then we use the latest in LED technology. And then the combination of those two with a proprietary racking system, we 
build vertical farms. And these vertical farms are located in structures that look like warehouses purposefully uh, so that we could utilize you know, real estate that is available in the market more, more regularly. And, and we use essentially a fraction of the, the land that's needed because we're growing indoors and we're growing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have up to 26 crop turns a year versus maybe you get two or three in the field. But we're also growing every day of the year. So it's year-round production, but we also grow on up to 14 levels and have a better crop density as a result of how we seed the, the plants. And so as a result, we get about 400 times the productivity per square foot of a conventional farm. And because of the aeroponic technology, we use about 95% less water because we're able to recapture and reuse the, the water. And then you combine that with not needing to use any pesticides and about half of the fertilizer, you have you know, really controlled environment agriculture to the next level where you're really able to finally control the plants in a way where you can you can optimize things like taste and texture and nutrition in a controlled environment and use a, a fraction of the inputs. Yeah. And what sort of crops are you growing in these farms? So we're vertically integrated and the systems that we've designed are the ones that are commercially available are designed to grow short stem leafy green plants, which is not too different from what uh, many other folks that are you know, looking at this industry or are looking to do. I think the difference from, from our standpoint is we've, we, all of the technology is, is in-house at AeroFarms. So we have our, our own staff of engineers who've internally developed this technology. We have uh, all the software developed here internally that integrates with all the data. You know, we have partnerships on, on some of the, the sensors and things like that to make sure that we're getting, you know, collecting the right type of data. But what's, what's really neat about AeroFarms is we're actually able to, because we have that vertical int integration, we're able to leverage all that, that know-how in growing leafy greens, and we're able to actually design systems to be optimized towards many other crops. And so we have another side of our business that's very focused on developing new crops for what we call you know, our strategic partners, the folks that are you know, similar to the supply chain issues in leafy greens. They're are other folks in other industries that are trying to solve supply chain issues within their own supply chains, and they see indoor ag as a, as a potential mechanism of doing that. And so, because of that vertical integration, we're able to assist in, in evaluating, you know, the extent to which we can commercialize those those technologies. Yeah, cool. So, so maybe so that's a good background about what AeroFarms is, I guess, today. Can you maybe take us back to the beginning around you know the idea behind AeroFarms and why was it? started in the first place and what was the what was the primary problem um the founding team was trying to solve in the establishment of AeroFarms? yeah so to go back to the very very beginning back in 2004 actually way before you know i knew anything about any of this i was still, still in college at the time but a professor ed harwood cornell university essentially built the first AeroFarm system essentially to prove a point that aeroponics was something that could be commercially scaled it wasn't something that had typically been thought to be commercially viable because of issues with nozzles clogging and, and uh, you know, just uh, doing it at scale. And so he essentially built, uh, developed systems and built them essentially in his garage. And actually back then it wasn't even with LEDs. They were using fluorescent, he was using fluorescent tubes. You know, with, with his success with the aeroponic system, he actually started AeroFarms back in 2004 and he was an OEM for a number of years and sold a number of systems. And then in 2011, 
David Rosenberg and Marco Shima came and restructured the company around owning and operating. And that was the, the really big transition. And the idea was there was a need to continue to operate these facilities to be able to improve on the technology. And the only way to do that was to, to own and operate them and not necessarily be selling the systems. And so the reasons why the founders, particularly David, our CEO, you know, got into this, into this area and the main problem he was trying to solve was really around water. And the idea was, you know, essentially 70% of fresh water goes to agriculture. So if you wanted to, and then 70% of our fresh water contamination comes from agriculture. So if you wanted to solve water, you really needed to get into ag. And, you know, they surveyed a number of different technologies and they found that aeroponics used even less water than many other comparable technologies. And because of the, the aeroponic misting, it allowed for accelerated growth because the, the, the roots had a lot of oxygenation of the, of the root, root system. And so they, they felt that technology was the furthest along and had the most viability. And, and then also the crops that it was, the systems were designed around were of a particular, had particular problems in the United States from a sourcing standpoint. Leafy greens are typically grown in either Salinas Valley or in Yuma, Arizona, or parts of Mexico. And then what, they're, what, what happens is they're grown in these areas where there really isn't that, that much water. A lot of the water that is brought in is pumped, you know, obviously in California from the Colorado River at great cost. A lot of the, actually, one of the misconceptions about water is it's, it's also energy. A big portion of California's energy bill goes, mm-hmm. to, uh, goes to moving or treating water. But uh, so they, they, they have to use traditional irrigation methods. They're not able to use drip irrigation on these types of crops. So it's very water intensive, a lot of pesticide usage. And then a lot of that runoff ends up going into our waterways and needs to be treated and creates uh, you know, a whole host of problems. But then primarily the issue is they're using non-potable water sources for that irrigation. And that's one of the reasons why you have a lot of the issues with food safety in the U.S. around E. coli, salmonella, particularly in leafy greens. So by going indoors, you can use potable water sources and you are really able to control um, that aspect of things. And then also you know, you're, you're saving, you're disintermediating the supply chain. So you're essentially able to save all of that, all of those trucking miles across the country by basically building these vertical farms local to where the consumer is and supplying them much more directly with with these vertical farms and then you know being able to do that using a fraction of the land zero pesticides half the fertilizer and and ultimately producing a, a plant that is cleaner looks better tastes better at the same price that you know is typically produced you know in, in traditional methods so yeah so i was actually just about to ask you that so yeah. you know the i can see I guess the environmental mission behind mm-hmm. why Aero Farms was established, but for the average consumer, you know, they're not going to you know, the supermarket to buy their leafy greens to solve water efficiency issues or to solve reduce the amount of trucking miles of their produce across the country. So, so is that that value proposition you mentioned there around you know E. coli, the, the food's safer? You know, how, how do you, you know, why is someone who's going and choosing their leafy greens from the supermarket choosing your product produce over something else? What's the value proposition that you guys are offering? Yeah, well, I, I think ultimately, you know, consumers care about, you know, where their product comes from. They care, you know, certainly that it's sustainably sourced, ethically sourced, but they also care that it's a clean product. And I think, 
that's not just free of you know some some of these like pathogens right like salmonella or e coli but it's also is it pesticide free and i think you know if you go to if you were to see the triple washing that's typically done for leafy greens you'll you'll see that there's even after the triple wash there's uh, still a kind of like a milky white film that's on on these plants and they're packaged with all of that moisture and you know a lot of those pesticide re- residue remains on the plants which is why everybody has to wash their their greens when they take them when they when they take them out of the package even though they're triple washed and so our process uh, doesn't require any washing uh, because there's no pesticides that were touching the plant so i think well, that's one of the things that we highlight is that it's a pesticide free it's locally grown and the value proposition is really that clean cleanness of the product but also it, the product tastes amazing and that's probably one of the biggest surprises that i i've had you know at arrow farms i always thought we would compete on taste and texture and on on the nutrition but i didn't think it would be we'd really be competing to that extent on taste because it's it's really a, a remarkable product and that's because we're able to really finally control what nutrients the, the plants get when they get them so that we get the best plants possible yeah and i think that's that's really important so a, a lot of work we, we work exclusively in uh helping develop businesses around environmental social and social impact and i think the biggest mistake we often see is that people position their product around their environmental or social mission so in, that, in your case you know around water usage or or improving water usage or reducing trucking miles or producing you know just a better product that's for the environment but customers don't buy your product for that reason so you know, i think yeah that positioning around yeah it's a cleaner it's it's you know it's you don't have to wash it it's and it tastes great it's still got to be a fantastic product and as a consequence of them them purchasing your product over over ones that are used during traditional farming methods you guys deliver on those environmental outcomes yeah. but you still have to have a great product that customers love that they're willing to you know choose over a competitor yeah, totally. And it's also, you know, we, we're positioning our company to be a supplier as a price taker. We don't want to be charging a, you know, a markup because of the sort of the mission driven and socially and environmentally conscious things that we're doing. That's certainly things that we continue to do and it's who we are. It's in our DNA as a company. But ultimately, if we're really going to change how these types of plants are grown globally, we really need to be thinking about how we can compete with field farmers growing these crops and really be able to compete on price and, and cost cost structure. And so we're really building our business model around that so that we can sell ultimately to the consumer at the same, if not a lower price. So how did you get involved with Aerofarms? So I understand you went there right at the beginning. You came in um, later after Aerofarms has sort of been established a little bit. Like, tell, us, tell us that story. Yeah, well, so um, the founder, it was really the founders were, this was back in 2012, they were raising their Series A. I I was actually, bizarrely, I was living in Moscow, Russia, doing a fellowship. And I was working for probably the first and, and only clean technology fund that was actually in Russia at the time. It, it was just started it was from, it was called the... Tatarstan Clean Technology Fund, and the Republic of Tatarstan basically funded a hundred million euro investment fund to, to, to fund clean technologies coming out of Europe and the United States. And I'd done my, I was doing my fellowship with something called the Alpha Fellowship, and I, I met them. And uh, so I was doing that, and I met the the founders through that fund, and they were raising their Series A, and I got connected with them. And, you know, was, was asked to look at the, the opportunity. And I really had no uh, exposure to vertical farming. I was 
always been interested in clean technology and, you know, was, was, you know, involved with the Earth Institute when I was at Columbia and, you know, also worked with a, a group called Active Earth Investments when I was in London, involved in investments in ESG focused metrics and in publicly traded companies. Uh, so I've always in, been interested in that area, but I, this is the first exposure to vertical farming and and basically was was asked to take a close look and over time really fell in love with the business model. And actually we weren't able to make an investment through that fund, but helped them with a, a seed round and really helped build their financial models and get them got them kind of in a good position to raise their Series A. And then once we got close to closing on our Series A, uh, this was at this point now, June or July of 2013, you know, I was obviously looking to move back to New York anyway. And this was a, a great opportunity to, you know, really, you know, get, you know, help build an operating company. And I, I always felt, you know, if you really want to know how to invest and venture capital, you know, to, you really had to build a company. And so this was a great opportunity. And I really believed in the vision that David and Mark and Ed had for the company and help them get going and, you know, before they close their series A and, you know, help them grow the company ever since. Yeah. Great. So tell us about, so you, you, you know, you've come from, I guess, that VC background where you're looking at the potential of the company and you know, moving into having to actually do it on the ground. Tell us about some of the, you know, what were some of the hardest things that you, you guess you had to deal with in sort of getting Aero Farms to where it is today? Yeah, well, you know, there there really wasn't any anything close to a playbook. So, you know, we, everything was based on assumptions that, you know, were were sort of best best guesses at the time. You know, obviously you do as much research as you can, but you know, these systems a, a vertical farm does not scale linearly and there are a lot of other kind of questions that pop up as they get larger. So, the units that you know, we had been operating were, were fairly small up, up until 2013. And so thinking about how to scale these systems and what type of infrastructure was needed, um, talking about anything from HVAC, electrical, refrigeration, you know, all of that to packaging, processing, all of that had to really be learned. And, you know, I think in building our first large scale facility, you know, we tried to be as smart on as possible on as many things as possible, but on things, on other things, we were really trying not to, not to, just not to mess up and uh, not to be stupid and stuff. And so, you know, certainly in certain instances, we underinvested and learned the hard, hard way. And in other things, we probably overinvested and certainly learned the hard way there. And it was a bit, a bit of stop and go, but over time, you know, we got the facility to kind of meet its it's, you know, we call it, you know, key, key performance indicators over time. And, uh, you know, we, we managed to get to where we needed to be. But there was definitely a lot of stop and go in there. Yeah. So, so tell me about the, the very first customer that you guys got. What, what, how, did, how did that come about? Who, was it, do you guys sell to uh, retailers or you direct to consumer? Maybe we can clarify that. And are you selling through retailers? Yeah. So we were, we were in, yeah. So we sell to like Fresh Direct and Whole Foods and ShopRite. And then we sell to a bunch of food service companies. You know, we were we were in a position where, you know, in Newark, it's it's kind of hard to build stuff in Newark, New Jersey. It takes time. There's a lot of there's a lot of I mean, Newark has been great to us, but it, you know, just getting the, the permits that you need and the approvals that you need, it just takes time. 
And, you know, when you're, you know, when you're a quickly growing organization, raising capital, you don't, time isn't really on your side. <laughs> mm. So you really, really needed to move quickly. And so we actually built uh, a few intermediate facilities uh, before we built our large production facility in Newark to kind of get, get us up and running. And so we built our first facility, we built actually in an old clothing store slash disco kind of thing. And we were growing on like one unit that was about 20 feet long and seven levels high, about 20 feet high. And that one was really just R&D. I don't think we were selling any product off of that. And then we, and we actually still have that facility and it does a lot of really, really neat R&D still. And then we moved to another facility that was like an old uh, paintball slash like laser tag facility with like these big, crazy murals of like, you know, like, I don't know, like Star Wars type stuff and like, Newark, like on fire, which we had to paint over, but like all this like crazy stuff. And we had a, we, that's where we ended up. That was about a 20,000 or so square foot facility. And we built three units that were about 80 feet long and seven levels high. And that we really built so that we could get up and running commercially and actually start packaging and growing and selling product to real customers. And that, that was a big moment, uh, making that transition and it all happened really quite quickly. And that was to, I believe it was to ShopRite at the time. Um, we got into a couple of stores and really got, you know, for the first time feedback on the quality of the product. And, you know, we're able to, you know, really learn a lot more about, you know, what we needed to do from a packaging processing standpoint and, you know, data collection standpoint as well. So that's yeah. did you ha- Did you have that customer lined up though before, before you bought that facility or or did you build it on faith? We, we built it, we, we had a lot of interest. So when we built that smaller unit, we had tons of folks coming in all the time, trying the product. Everybody thought the product was incredible. We had a, a, a huge support and everyone was open to you know us building something and purchasing from us. I, I think because the demand was so high, we never we never really felt that was a risk, and we still don't even we still even with much larger facilities see that as a risk. Because again, we're we're really structuring ourselves as a price taker. We're selling at the pro- the price points that are already in the market, and almost all customers agree it's a superior product and that it's it tastes better, it looks better, it's pesticide free and locally grown. So. So we we haven't really we didn't really see that as a risk. So we we were able to build it before. Um, yeah, but I guess the key thing you were like you were actively engaging with your, who your ultimate customers were very early, early on in the piece. I mean, because that's something that we we push very hard with our our clients is yeah. you know test 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 test. You know, there's there's this uh, we have a lot of them saying oh, we're in stealth mode. We don't want to tell anyone about our product. Go, no, no, tell everyone. Like get yeah. get out there and get get that feedback as fast and as quickly as you can. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think, you know, to a certain extent, you want to keep your technology, you know, as close as possible and your IP and your trade secrets and all that. But, you know, when you're talking about customers, uh, getting their feedback early on uh, is hugely helpful. And, you know, even before you start selling, and that's something we definitely did. Yeah. So, so if there was someone listening out there at the moment who was thinking about starting an enterprise to address some sort of environmental social issue what's the having having gone through what you've been through now what's the one piece of advice you give someone like that yeah i mean it's gonna it's gonna sound pretty generic but it really is follow your passion and i i only say that because 
I always was passionate about the environment and, 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 and doing things that were socially responsible. And I was also passionate about other stuff. And I studied Russian in college and I decided, you know, like I, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to put all the time into doing that, then I might as well go and live there for a little while. And I was always something in the back of my mind that I wanted to do. And so I did it and I ended up finding this great company and it wasn't like I planned to, to find a company and help start this amazing enterprise. And, you know, things don't necessarily work linearly in that way. But I think for me, as long as you're following that kind of inner guidance, when you're doing what you're passionate about things, you know, it's it, life is about like the journey, not the destination. So even if you have a different destination in mind, you don't end up there. If you, if, as long as you're following that, that journey, I think you're going to end up, you know, not only having a good time, but where you want to go. And I think that's yeah. my, at least my experience. Yeah. yeah. I think virtually every guest has exactly the same advice on that question. I might have to change, <laughs> might have to change, might have to change the question because it's, uh, yeah. everyone says exactly the same thing, but it's so true. It's like, I, I mean, uh, when I started my business, I just did it. I just, well, I got one day, I said, I'm going to have a go. I yeah. no, that, it's not, I had no plan, so it's not something, not, it's not a process I advocate these days, but yeah. I've decided well, one that other, I one other, Yeah, one other piece of advice that probably is not as commonly said, and I I, I just, like, I spoke to some folks that like I actually do recently, and uh, a, a similar question came up, but it was really like, if you wanted to get into socially responsible business, like what would, you know, what, do you, what would your advice be? And there, I answered a little bit differently, and I said, well, it doesn't, you don't necessarily like have to work for a company that's doing something socially responsible. There are a lot of companies that are doing a lot of harm and they need good people that think about social responsibility in them to do a lot less harm. And I think if you, if you bring a really good skill set and you can get into those organizations and help them change how they, how they act and you know, do things in a more ethically, socially responsible way, there could be a huge impact there as well. And I think a lot of folks, they, they get into the, these areas and, and, and they, you know, they're to a certain extent preaching to the choir. And I feel like we, we also need people working for you know, organizations that aren't necessarily doing the best work and help them help change them. So another way to answer yeah. Great, great advice, yeah. Change from within. So, yeah, it's really good advice. Actually, and a lot of people listening uh, to this podcast are in that position. Yeah, they might be sustainability managers within a business or they just want to make the world a better place and they're working within a company that they you know, think has potential. Uh, and our view is that every business can be have a positive impact, but you do need to do it in a very conscious way. So, all right. So, let's. So, if people wanted to learn more about Aero Farms or for the audience, actually, well, actually, tell me about where's. To, to, where's Aero Farms today? Where are you guys located? You know, where can people get your product? Yeah, so we're we're in currently in Newark, New Jersey, and our products are available throughout the Northeast at Whole Foods, and we're also Shoprite, Fresh Direct. You can order the products online, and then we're actually expanding. Very exciting right now. We're expanding to build a big facility in Virginia, and so uh, that's something I'm very focused on at the moment, and that will get us uh, much broader kind of distribution. So. But if you uh, certainly, if you're interested, if you want to learn more, absolutely go to our website. You know, feel free to reach out to me on on LinkedIn or over over my email or something like that. Happy to provide that. There you go. We'll put all that information in the show notes for for who want to have a look at that. But just for the the Aerofarms website, what's the website? Just www.aerofarms.com. Yeah. 
All right, so habits. Uh, let's wrap up with our mad minutes. So five quick questions in sixty seconds. So good to go. I've got to do this. I, I missed the second part. I got to do this in sixty seconds. <laughs> well, I should, I'm going to change it because we consistently fail to do it within sixty seconds anyway. So uh, I'm going to have to change it, but it sounds better as a the mad minute. I'll have to. I like it. I like it. Okay, I'll try. I'll, it. <laughs> I'll a different way. All right. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, so the best piece of advice, my grandfather sat me down when he was at 80 and I was uh, in my early 20s and he was like, Sam, right now, time is your most valuable asset. And like at the time, I felt, I actually felt pretty worthless. So I was like, I, I've got a lot more to offer than just my time. But I guess that in combination with like his stare was was very impactful. And I think it's just make make the best use of your time. And then he also said like, I was thinking about going to law school at the time. And he was also like, don't go to law school if you don't want to be a a lawyer and that turned out to be really good advice because i didn't really want to be a lawyer and i didn't yeah. end up going to law school so yeah yeah and i think that yeah time time is the one thing you can't get more of so very sage advice i think what's your favorite business book well it's not it's not the art of the deal <laughs> it's you know i'm not i'm actually not really an avid book reader one of my favorite things that i read when i was in business school was actually the economic organization of a POW camp. And I recommend anybody read that. And whenever I have like any doubts in capitalism and I don't feel like it's doing what we need, it needs to be doing for society, I think back to that, that, that paper and I'm kind of angered in it because I know, you know, we're naturally have a tendency towards commerce and trade and how we organize ourselves in society. So definitely recommend reading that to anybody. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Actually, I used to do a lot of, lot of uh, business in India. And uh -huh. I got the chance to visit. There's a slum near Mumbai, um, so it's the largest, one of the largest slums in Southeast Asia. And it is when you actually look at take an economic view, like it's such a thriving economy in that space, and nothing goes to waste. Yeah, it's almost like the circular economy personified. So yeah, there's some fascinating insights if you look at some um, you know, different cases around how how things actually really work in the world. When you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, I, I wanted to be a, a like an astronaut, which I guess is fairly typical. <laughs> but then I. Then I realized, like, in order to be an astronaut, you had to be an aerospace engineer. And then I wanted to be an aerospace engineer for a while. And everybody was like, why do you want to, like, I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, and then later I decided I didn't want to do that. And so the astronaut thing kind of faded away. <laughs> so. uh, well, I, I wanted to be an astronaut and a marine biologist. So I'm not sure how that uh, combination would have gone together. But anyway, yeah. yeah. So what's your favorite quote? You know what, you know, a quote that kind of, thinking about it a little bit lately, it's um, actually very, very much from pop culture. It's from Batman, uh, from, the dark, from the Dark Knight. And it was actually in all of the ads for that movie. And then Harvey Dent, who uh, turns into Two-Face, actually says, either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the enemy. And it's, it's, a, it, it's an important quote, I think, because a lot of people go into whatever they're doing, I think, with the best intentions. And sometimes it doesn't quite turn out that way. And I think you see a lot of that now in industry and in, in technology in particular. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's something that's co it's, it's always on my mind because I'm certainly going into this industry and I want to do the best that I can for society and for humanity. And I think it's a great quote because I think we all have this amazing potential to do good things, but, you know, we all have to be really careful to, to keep doing that um, throughout our lives. Great. Awesome. I like that one. Now, if you go back in time and give your 20-year-old self some advice, what would it be? I think I probably stressed out a little bit too much in my 20s. I think I wanted to kind of 
I was always thinking about the future and not as much enjoying the moment. And I think really in your 20s, you want to experiment, follow your passions, obviously. But I think learning to do, learning to know what you don't want to do is just as important as knowing what you do want to do. And I think testing things out and trying different things is is perfectly fine. So that, you know, when you do get to your 30s, you, you have a better sense and hopefully what you want to, what, you, what you're going to want from life. So Great. Well, that's it. So that was right. five, five rapid fire questions in uh, four minutes and 37 seconds. So not quite the mad minute. <laughs> there we go. It doesn't have the same ring to it saying, you yeah, know, we're going to do the mad four minutes and 37 seconds. Anyway, yeah. thanks for taking the time to have a chat to us. I'm really uh, interested to see where you guys go in the future. And I, I think, you know, the, what you guys are doing is the future of farming. And given the, the range of environmental challenges that agriculture contributes to, but also can be part of the solution for. So I can't wait to see what you guys do in the future. So thanks for joining us on the Good Business Podcast. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, if there's one thing that is clear from all of the guests we've spoken to on the Good Business Podcast is that the first step in creating an impact business is to make sure you have a great product that your customers love. You really need to understand what your customers want and how to communicate with them. Now, if you haven't checked out the great resources available on our website, which includes everything from free ebooks to worksheets to create a testable problem statement for your target customers, then head over to www.bluetribe.co forward slash podcast. Remember, if you like today's episode, make sure you click that like and subscribe button and tell a friend about the podcast so they can get some inspiration from great businesses doing great things. Coming up in the next episode. I declared I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro and fundraise the money there. I just took... I guess I just took that steadfast belief and idea into, you know, a business opportunity. And that's that wonderful phrase of, you know, you jump off the the cliff and build your wings on the way down. I literally did that. I guess in the next episode came up with the idea for her business at the top of the highest single freestanding mountain in the world. Can you guess what that mountain was? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. Well, that's it for another episode of the Good Business Podcast. I'm James McGregor. Until next time. Thank you.